Hebrews chapter 12 this morning. Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to tell you what I told uh, in Sunday school. I have to take my phone this morning and lay it here, and it may actually go off in the midst of our of our preaching today. And if that happens, I will have to leave the room, and you will have to talk amongst yourselves. Because my mother is, and I believe she's out of surgery now, but she's she is at the uh, in ICU at the University Hospital in Cleveland. So pray for her. She uh, fell last night. Has been suffering with some kind of malady and. Uh, apparently they had to do emergency surgery this morning. So if the phone rings, I will answer it. Uh, however, the normal thing is keep your phones off. Don't, 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 don't turn them on during a service if at all possible. Uh, because as one preacher said, we're here to hear from God, but he's not going to call you on the phone. So keep it off. All right. Hebrews chapter 12, verse number one. I want to, I want to continue something we started last week. We started talking about three arrows in Satan's quiver. Last week we talked about arrow number one. Today we're going to talk about arrow number two. Hebrews chapter 12, verse number one. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. Father God, we're thankful for this passage. We're thankful, Lord, for these, these words. We're thankful for the Bible. And I pray today as we, as we look at this and as we kind of just jump off from it and talk about uh, more of a topical thing today. I pray, Lord, that you'll just speak to our hearts. Fill me with your spirit. Help me, Lord God, to concentrate. I pray today there'd be no distraction. I pray today there'd be uh, no hindrance to your word. And I pray that, uh, that, Lord, you would indeed help me to say the things I ought to and nothing more. So just uh, guide today, I pray. And I pray that uh, you would speak to all of us, that we would have ears to hear, that uh, if there is something very specific here that you have for for us today, that we'll respond to it as you would have us to, and that, Lord, we would uh, not be ignorant of our adversaries' devices. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I mentioned last week, I've been thinking about the devil lately, and I mentioned last week, the Bible says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse number 8. We ought to have that verse underlined in our Bibles because it reminds us that there is a devil, that he is real, that he is our adversary, that he is the enemy of our souls. He wants to destroy us, but of course he can't. We talked about that just a little bit last week. He cannot really destroy us. We who are saved are safe and secure in Christ forever. Jesus said in John chapter 5 and verse number 24, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. I'll underline that particular phrase. Has, present tense, everlasting, can never end. Life. There's nothing that can interrupt that. We are safe and secure in him. They shall not come into judgment. There is no further judgment for sin for the believer whose sin was buried on the cross with Jesus. 
shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death unto life. That's just such a great verse. John chapter 5 and verse number 24 that tells us that what we have in Christ can never end. What we have in Christ is now. What we have in Christ is eternal. We are eternally secure in Him. He also said in John chapter 10 and verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. That's pretty clear. They shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. And that includes old Beelzebub, the devil, our adversary. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29. So he wants to destroy us, but if we're saved, he cannot, because we are safe and secure in our Savior, Jesus Christ. He wants to destroy us, but he cannot because God has said all we need to do as Christians is to resist him. That's an amazing thought. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. James chapter 4 and verse number 7. That's a wonderful thought. He wants to destroy us, but he cannot because you are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Our Savior is bigger than our adversary. Praise God for that. So I want to make sure we're assured as we talk about this topic here today, uh, he cannot destroy us. He cannot. If we name the name of Christ, uh, he is a defeated enemy. But we also have to admit that he can cause an awful lot of mischief, can he? And he can cause an awful lot of trouble. He can wreak havoc in our lives if we let him. And, of course, that last phrase is the key, if we let him. If he is able to get a foothold in our lives, it's because we let him. And as we learned last week, there are three areas where he likes to attack. We call them three arrows in Satan's quiver. I know he has all kinds of tools and all kinds of arrows in that quiver, but there's three that seem to me to always bubble to the top. We talked about that first one last week, an arrow that he likes to use to break down our relationships, uh, our relationship between us and God. He can't unsave us, but he can make us ineffective. He can cause us to be discouraged, all those sorts of things. Our relationship with our church, our relationship with our spouses, our relationships with family, friends, kids, you name it. He wants to break those things down. And so we mentioned last time that the first arrow was uh, the offensive words of others. How many times has Satan used something somebody said in the past and shot that arrow at us and we festered over it until it, it, it busted us up? It caused our relationships to be soured. The third arrow, which we'll talk about next week, is convincing us that we're not getting we want what we want from a relationship, or our needs are not being met. And we'll talk about that not next week, but the following week after our missions emphasis Sunday. But if you just think about it, how many times do people get out of church because they think their needs are not being met? How many marriages and how many relationships are hindered by that? We'll talk about that one next time. But today, I want to talk about arrow number two, and that is getting us to dwell on some past hurt. This goes beyond words now. Something happened in our past, and Satan reminds us of it and uses it to try to bust us up and and, and get our relationships hurt as a result. And so I want to talk about that one just a little bit, getting us to dwell on some past hurt and convincing us that we just can't get over it. So, first of all, I want to look at that arrow itself, what he does. But then, secondly, I want to talk about how, how do we defend against it. That's basically all we're going to do here this morning. Churches are filled 
and you know this to be true, churches are filled with people who have experienced bad things in their lives. Just like last week we said, uh, it's not rocket science to know that people are going to say unkind things to you, or there's going to be things that are said that are going to hurt you. So we also know that things are going to happen, experiences are going to happen that are going to be unpleasant and, and bothersome to us. Sometimes those experiences are, we have to admit, the result of personal sin in our lives. We bring an awful lot of stuff on ourselves, don't we, by our own sinfulness. And sometimes we live with the results of that sin until Christ calls us home. Sometimes bad experiences in our life happen not because of our own sin, but the sin of somebody else. I, I want to say that's perhaps even more the case, but I'm not sure it's more the case. It's, it's, just, another, it's just another example of it. For example, when... Uh, a husband or a wife is hurt by the actions of their spouse and they live with that experience. Or somebody does something in a church, a church has, goes through some kind of issue and it causes you to be away from God because you just can't get over it. Sins of your own, sins of somebody else, sometimes it has nothing to do with sin. Sometimes it's God working through temporary pain and suffering in an individual to bring glory to himself. Jesus talked about this very thing. Jesus passed by. He saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. John chapter 9. And so sometimes it has nothing to do with sin. Sometimes God has a completely different plan. But nonetheless, we see it in our past as something that hurt. We see it in our past as something that's tripped us up. And so we have to ask ourselves some questions as we think about this. Should any of these things in our path color our relationship with God or with one another? Is there anything that, that might have happened to us in the past that is a reason for quitting on God, stopping in our service for Him, sitting down? Is there anything that has happened in the past that's reason for leaving a marriage or ending a relationship? Always questions to come to our mind. And one thing I do know is true, and, and, and I, I hope that you would accept it as true too, is we're not victims of our past. As Christians, we're never victims of our past. No matter what has happened, we can rise above it. The Bible is filled with people who suffered from sinful failure or failures of other kinds, and they rose above it. Failures either in the walk of their own, or their own Christian walk or in the walk of others that, that impacted them. And they rose above it and continued to serve God. I mean, my mind goes to somebody like Joseph. How, how do you explain how Joseph dealt with what happened to him? I'm not going to have you turn to Genesis chapter 39, but on your own, you might want to go and read the story. Genesis chapters 39 through 41, where Joseph, for no fault of his own, was sold by his brothers into slavery. His brothers just simply hated him. Now, we could say something about the fact that he apparently was a little bit of an arrogant teenager and might have brought some of that on himself, but maybe an arrogant millennial, something like that. Might have brought some of that on himself, but uh, for the most part, no. Joseph did nothing wrong, and uh, they just didn't like him, and so they sold him into slavery. He, was, he spent the, the vast majority of his life away from his family, away from his friends, as a slave, in prison for a good portion of that time. And the fact is, even though he was almost entirely victimized by others, he didn't quit. He kept on going. He rose above it. And he was mightily used of God because of it. How about Job? We talked about Job last week for just a few moments. We read a little bit of the very first chapter of Job. 
Go and read the whole thing. And you see Job is put through perhaps the most horrible time of testing that any human being has ever been put through on the face of the earth. And had nothing to do with anything wrong that he had done in his life. Satan simply wanted to try and break him. And God wanted to prove to Satan that he was unbreakable. And so Job was caught in the middle of all that. And so just just despite suffering as few have ever suffered, Job stayed true. He didn't quit. And he rose above it. How about David? David, King David, one of my favorite characters in all the Bible, had a tryst with Bathsheba, after which his life was turned upside down. His son turned against him. I think we talked about that last week. His son turned against him and tried to take his kingdom. He lost a child as a result of that sin. He seemingly suffered from the results of that one moment of passion with Bathsheba for the rest of his life. But unlike with Joseph and Job, his suffering was a result of his sin. And he could have sat there and said, well, you know what? (laughs) I've blown it. I'm done. But he didn't. He repented of his sin. He rose above it. And he died a winner rather than a loser. Over and over we see this same pattern in the Bible. Paul said, we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Many, many others in the Bible who experienced great problems in the past, but overcame them and lived a victorious life up to the end. That's our model. That's our model. We are Christians, indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, filled with His very presence. And we know that the end of the story is total and complete victory. So how is it that we sometimes find ourselves wallowing in defeat? How is it that sometimes we find ourselves responding, allowing that second arrow of Satan to land and to cause us uh, to drift away? Many people leave churches for that very reason. They were hurt in the past. They can't get over it. Many people leave marriages for that very reason. If something was, was done... They just can't get over. He hurt me. She never should have said that or she never should have done that. These are the things that are examples of Satan's second arrow. And they ought not to be. We need to be victors, not victims. Satan loves this arrow. A fellow by the name of Vernon Grounds, I think he was the uh, chancellor of Denver Seminary, I believe. Vernon Grounds told of an incident that happened while he was in seminary. He said that where he went to school, there was no gymnasium. So he and some other of the seminarians liked to play basketball, and so they would go down to a public school and play. And while they were there, they would be playing, and there would always be the janitor waiting for them to be done so that he could lock up and close up. As they would play, he would always be sitting over on the bleachers reading. And as they talked to him a little bit, they discovered he was reading his Bible. And so one one day, one of the seminarians walked over to him and said, "Uh, What are you reading? He said, I'm reading the book of Revelation. And this cocky seminarian said to him, do you understand what you're reading? He said, oh, yeah, I understand it perfectly well. And the seminarian said, what does it mean? He said very quietly, it means Jesus is going to win. And that's exactly what it means. Jesus is going to win. That's how you and I ought to view things. Jesus is going to win. And as as believers in Jesus Christ who are in Christ, we're going to win too. And as a matter of fact, the Bible is pretty clear that we've already won. The victory is already taken care of. 
Another fellow by the name of Lyle Arakaki of Honolulu, Hawaii, told a story. Let me just read his story. Here's what he said. He said, in Hawaii, because of the time difference with the continental U.S., the National Football League Monday night football game is played in mid-afternoon. So the local TV station delays its telecast till 6.30 in the evening. When my favorite team plays, I'm too excited to wait for television, so I listen to the game on the radio, which broadcasts it live. Then, because they are my favorite team, I watch the game on television, too. If I know my team has won the game, it influences how I watch it on television. If my team fumbles the ball or throws an interception, it's not a problem. I just think, well, that's bad, but it's okay, because I know we're going to win. Isn't that the way we're supposed to view things? Isn't that a wonderful illustration? We can view failures as temporary setbacks. We can view these things in our past that hurt us as temporary setbacks. But we're going to win. We are victors. And so why live like victims? Former British Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli once said, Grief is the agony of an instance, the indulgence of grief, the blunder of a life. And yet so many do that. They just continue to indulge grief and pain and let it color them from that moment on. Victors, not victims, as Satan would have us believe when he lobs that arrow our way. Most people know that Babe Ruth set a record of 714 home runs. How many really remember that he also struck out 1,330 times on the way to that record? Most people know that Jonas Salk invented or discovered the polio vaccine but few realize he had to fail 200 times before he found the right one. 200 times. Nearly everyone who watches professional basketball agrees Michael Jordan was one of the greatest players who ever lived. However, most people don't realize he failed to make the basketball team in his sophomore year in high school, and he didn't let that stop him. Henry Ford went bankrupt five times before he succeeded. I didn't even know that was possible to go bankrupt five times. Thomas Edison failed over 10,000 times in his attempts to create the light bulb. At one particular time, an aide urged him to quit after several hundred failures, and he said, why quit now? We know of at least a hundred things that won't work. Learning from our failures, rising above our failures, is part of the process of being successful. None of these people would have accomplished anything that they accomplished and all these great things that took place that we are so thankful for today if they had allowed something in their past trip them up. I have, to, I have to include this quote here. This quote is from a fictional character. I've quoted this before, and you all looked at me like I was a nut for quoting this particular person, but I have to, because it's one of the best quotes on this topic I've ever heard. I'm going to quote Rocky Balboa, and, and this is just a great quote. Listen to what he said. Everybody knows who Rocky Balboa was, right? He said, let me tell you something you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. You, me, or nobody is going to hit as hard as life, but it ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward, how much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. He might have been a fictional character with a weird accent, but that's a great quote. Then that's Bible right there. I mean, that's exactly how we defeat this second arrow of Satan. And so I have to ask today, what is the pain? What is the sin? What is the suffering that infects your life? What thing has happened in your past that has you thinking about maybe quitting on God, 
drifting away, walking away from his church, leaving your, your soulmate or separating from Christian friends. What is it? Because whatever it is, you're not a victim to it. And you do not have to be. You can rise above it. And, of course, I know what you're saying. You're all sitting there and you're saying, well, that all sounds just wonderful and good. But the struggle really is, how do we do that? How do we really develop that kind of a mindset? How do we learn to turn a blind eye to the pain that screams so loudly from past experiences? Because sometimes it is deafening, isn't it? So what can we do? What can we practice in our life? to be a victor rather than a victim. And how, how do we actually ward off that second arrow? And, and let me just share just a couple of thoughts about that, how we defend against it. I'm sure you can think of some others. But let me just make a couple of suggestions. And just like last week, none of this is rocket science. This is all very, very simple, almost childishly simple. But I think it's the answer. Number one, sometimes we just need to keep on keeping on. Sometimes it is really no more complicated than that. Whatever you've been doing, keep doing. Just because you don't feel like doing it now, that's no reason to quit. Feelings follow obedience. That's key for us to remember. Feelings follow obedience. We don't just obey because we feel like obeying. We obey, and the Lord will take care of the feelings. Failure and defeat come sometimes. We're not perfect, but we need to be ready to get up and keep on going and just keep on doing what we were doing. If we, if we find ourselves in a crash and we're still standing at the end of that crash and Jesus hasn't called us home, then he's not done with us yet. And we need to keep on doing exactly what we were doing. When the day is dark and gloomy and the fog obscures your view and you feel there is no challenge waiting anywhere for you, when it's routine you must follow through a dreary weather chart and you feel the hand of duty like a millstone on your heart, face the skies, however darkened, When you ache to turn away, do the job that lies before you. Keep your courage one more day. You can never guess how often you affect another's life by the fact you are a doer, not a quitter in the strife. Just keep on doing it. Just keep on. Or we could put it another way. Do the next thing. I came across this poem here a while back, which I I put in a, what do you call it, a plastic thing. Laminated. I laminated it. Because it really spoke to my heart. And it was simply called, Do the Next Thing. From an old English parsonage down by the sea, there came in twilight a message to me. Its quaint Saxon legend, deeply engraven, hath, it seems to me, teaching from heaven. And on through the doors the quiet words ring like a low inspiration. Do the next thing. Many a questioning, many a fear, many a doubt hath its quieting here. Moment by moment, let down from heaven, time, opportunity, and guidance are given. Fear not tomorrows, child of the king. Trust them with Jesus and do the next thing. Do it immediately. Do it with prayer. Do it reliantly, casting all care. Do it with reverence, tracing his hand who placed it before thee with earnest command. Stayed on omnipotence, safe neath his wing. Leave all resulting and do the next thing. Looking for Jesus, ever serener, working or suffering, be thy demeanor. In his dear presence, the rest of his calm, the light of his countenance, be thy psalm. Strong in his faithfulness, praise and sing. Then as he beckons thee, do the next thing. So often it really is that simple. Take another step. That's all you have to do. 
one more step. We tend to think we have to look way down the road. Just look at that next step. The psalmist wrote, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord in Psalm 37, verse 23. So concentrate on that. One more step. That's all you got to do. One more step. Do the next thing. And then once you've gotten there, concentrate on the next one. Do the next thing. Well, and one other thing, and this is probably pretty obvious too, but I think we need to familiarize ourselves with the Bible's promises of victory. We've been talking in my Sunday school class about the importance of memorizing Scripture, meditating on Scripture, just internalizing Scripture. Nothing will help us to deal with this arrow better than having these promises at hand whenever Satan lobs it our way. I mean, think of this. So many you could think of. I just wrote down a few. Psalm 44, verse 5. Uh, Through you we will push down our enemies. Through your name we will trample those who rise up against us. First Corinthians 15, 57. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. John 16, 33. These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. 1 John 5, 4, whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Romans chapter 8, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so that arrow comes our way, and we swat it away with the promises of our victory. And, of course, there's no greater illustration, I don't think, of this anywhere than our Lord Jesus Christ. We read that passage from Hebrews in the beginning. Christ, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted the bloodshed striving against sin. Jesus, he was not only the author, he was also the finisher. He started out to redeem our souls. To redeem yours and mine from sin. He knew it would cost him his very life, but he didn't quit. And on the cross, he finished what he had started. And that victorious cry of it is finished still rings out today. It rang loud that day and it rings out today, reminding us what he started, he completed. He did not quit. And because of that, he can forgive your sins. He can forgive my sins. Because of that, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord can be saved. Because of that, all who will believe on him can be saved. Because of that, by asking Jesus to forgive us and save our soul, we can have eternal life. It's as simple as that. He's our example. Well, I think, and maybe, maybe, maybe you think differently, but I think there are way too many who name the name of Christ who quit too soon, who allow that arrow to, to land. Something has happened in their past, and they're weakened by it, beaten down by failure and defeat. Maybe it's too strong of me to say it, but I think it's ridiculous for us as Christians to live that way when the Bible promises us such victory. So let's determine this morning that we're going to be victors and not victims. Let's be ready for that arrow of Satan when he lobs it at us, and he will. 
deflected every time he sends it toward us. Let not that arrow be the reason we allow ourselves to drift away from God, from his church, from one another, from any of our relationships. Let us not allow Satan to get the advantage of us in that area. May we be sober, be vigilant, because our adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour.